Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabiso Luhoko and Figilelingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the High Court in Blantyre has adjourned the US the 11 million US dollar corruption case involving former President Abakili Mulusi and the World Health Organization who has warned that the yellow fever outbreak in Angola poses a threat to the entire world. In sports news, FIFA president assures Russia that they will host the 2018 World Cup. But first up, the news with Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Political tension is high in the Democratic Republic of Congo where opponents of President Joseph Kabila say he is trying to cling to power beyond the end of his mandate this year. Police in southeastern DRC fired tear gas on Wednesday to disperse hundreds of anti-government protesters who accused security forces of vandalizing protesters of opposition leaders. Violent protests over the issue in January last year left more than 40 people dead. Kabila, who won disputed elections in 2006 and 2011 is barred by the constitution from standing for a third term but critics accuse him of trying to delay the vote to prolong his time in power. More than 100 children have been abducted on the border between Ethiopia and South Sudan, leaving their families desperate for their return. The mass killings and abduction reportedly took place last Friday just inside Ethiopia. They are believed to be to have been carried out by armed cattle raiders from South Sudan. Chief of Communications in East Africa for UNICEF, James Elder, says the perpetrators should be dealt with effectively. South Sudan has been in the grip of a brutal civil war for more than two years, which has left millions of people displaced and tens of thousands dead. Elder condemns the brutality, saying things are going out of hand. Recognizing this, the SDGs and Agenda 2063 from the UN and AU, respectively, require governments, regional organizations and the international community to focus on the root causes of conflict and fragility. These causes range from poverty, inequality and exclusion to governance failures, let's face it, the lack of decent work and the flow of weapons. Young survivors of sexual violence by peacekeepers in Central African Republic say they've received little help, even as the international community pledged to do more. The United Nations says it is together with its entities working to refer victims quickly to service providers and give them the assistance they need. The UN has been in the spotlight for months over allegations of child rape and other sexual abuses by its peacekeepers, especially those based in CR and the DRC. 
Senior U.S. officials are warning of deepening links between the Islamic State and Boko Haram. America's U.N. envoy Samantha Powers and the top U.S. military officials visited Chad, highlighting the country's uncertain position in dealing with hostile militant groups and unstable neighboring governments. And finally, the African Union's commitment to stop conflict across the continent by 2020 is ambitious but critically important. Speaking at a high-level forum at the UN entitled The Africa We Want, Deputy Secretary-General Jean Eliasson underscored the importance of ending conflict in order to arrive at a peaceful and secure Africa. Recognizing this, the SDGs and Agenda 2063 from the UN and AU respectively, require governments, regional organizations, and the international community to focus on the root causes of conflict and fragility. These Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Tsinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The High Court in Blantyre, Malawi, has adjourned the 11 million U.S. dollar corruption case involving former President Bakili Mulusi to the 3rd of May in 2016. This follows an application by the state that it wants to separately prosecute accused person Mulusi and her personal secretary, Linus Whiskey. George Mango reports from Lilongwe. This means that Malawians will have to wait a little longer before they hear whether their donor money and taxes went into Malusi's personal bank accounts between 1999 and 2004. This contradicts a ruling made in February this year that the case should be concluded within two weeks as per an agreement between the state and defense teams. Last week, the case was adjourned on two consecutive times on the basis that the defense witness was taken ill. The proceedings were also stopped after Linus Whiskey collapsed as the defense continued to cross-examine the first witness, Victor Banda. Whiskey was rushed to Blanter Adventist Hospital for medical attention. The defense team, led by Tamando Chokoto, said Whiskey's medical report shows a diagnosis and recommended a three-day bed rest and an appointment for review on April 22, 2016. Currently, about 145,000 U.S. dollars has been deducted from 11 million U.S. dollars. This after the first witness, Victor Banda, agreed that the money should not be part of the cumulative figure and there was no proof it was acquired corruptly. The deductions, among others, include money from losses in Taja Trading and distributors and loans from Loita Investment Bank and Standard Bank, which he got for the construction of Keza Office Park. Area, Deputy SB Director Renek Matemba had this to say. The moment the property is valued and is tuted, it will go to reducing his sentence. So it's in his favor and not us as the state. The state had, through the Anti-Corruption Bureau, asked High Court Judge McLean Kamambe that the two accused persons, Mulhouse and Whiskey, be prosecuted separately. The application requires that the two meet in the chambers on April 29, 2016.
where a formal application will be made and the defense counsel will respond. The defense had made protest to the application. Out of the 15 counts, only 13 out of 15 are relating to the second accused, Whiskey. Whiskey is answering three counts, including two pertaining to theft by a person employed in the public service. The third charge is giving a false report or information to the Anti-Corruption Bureau. For over six years, Mulozi has been answering charges of corruption in which he is accused of squandering public funds amounting to 11 million US dollars. The case has stalled due to the ill health of Mulozi. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Lilongwe. The debate on the budget vote of the Office of South Africa's Chief Justice generated tension between the ruling ANC and opposition DA and EFF in the light of the Constitutional Court ruling on the Ngandla security upgrade. It was also announced that Deputy Chief Justice Dikhang Museneke will go on retirement in two months' time. Our Parliament correspondent, Mercedes Besant, who has been monitoring the debate, filed this report. Before the opening of the debate, Justice and Correctional Services Minister Michael Masuta delivered his speech on the budget vote for the Office of the Chief Justice. Almost a billion rands has been budgeted for the remuneration and benefits of judges for this financial year. House Chairperson, over the three-year medium-term expenditure framework period, the OCJ has been allocated a total budget of $5 billion 5.8 billion for the 2016-17 financial year the allocated budget amounts to 1.785 billion of this amount 920.057 million is allocated to judges remuneration and benefits Masuta also praised the outgoing Deputy Chief Justice Dikhang Musenege and the President of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Lex Mbadi, saying their contribution in the judiciary will not go unnoticed. Let me announce the imminent retirement of Deputy Chief Justice Musenege and the President of the Supreme Court of Appeal, Justice Lex Mbadi, in the next two months. Both have served our judiciary with great distinction and with honor and made an indelible contribution in sharpening our jurisprudence in this country. The alleged failure of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission program and the landmark Constitutional Court ruling against President Jacob Zuma and the National Assembly also dominated the debate. The chairperson of the Justice and Correctional Services Committee, Matole Motsecha, says there's a need for Parliament to reopen the debate on the TRC. He says this is sparked by the parole of the convicted murderers of the slain former SACP leader, Chris Hani. The decision of Houghton High Court to grant parole to murderers of Chris Honey has opened the debate on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The African Union is also seized with the matter. Parliament appears to have failed and or neglected to monitor and ensure the implementation of the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. EFF MP Mabatu Mukause praised the office of the Chief Justice, saying the EFF supports the budget allocation for this office. This is only the second year the office of the Chief Justice has been allocated its own budget, and we are proud of the critical role played by this office and the judiciary as a whole. 
in maintaining law and order in the Republic of South Africa and for preventing our country from sliding into kleptocracy. DAMP Glenis Breitenbach criticized the National Assembly Speaker Balek Ambete, the President and the ANC Secretary General for what she says, giving their own interpretation of the Constitutional Court judgment into the Nkandla security upgrades. The Speaker went so far as to make a puerile assertion that courts finding that the National Assembly's conduct was inconsistent with the Constitution was different from saying it violated the Constitution. The President and Mr. Mantashi showed utter disrespect for the people of South Africa with their utterances, undermining people's intelligence and ridiculing the constitutional principles that the Chief Justice so eloquently spelt out in the Nkandla judgment. But ANC MP Bongani Bongo accused the DA of hypocrisy, saying the DA was against President Jacob Zuma's decision to appoint Mokhoeng Mokhoeng as Chief Justice almost five years ago. I think one writer who wrote said the DA does not like black people. I think this has been exposed now because when when they only like black people when they behave like them and act like them and speak like them. That is the only time they like black people. When because when the Chief Justice was appointed they let everyone in civil society to say the Chief Justice must not be appointed. It's not the right person to be appointed. But today, they are the ones who are protecting him like uh, no one's business. All political parties were in support of the budget vote of the Office of the Chief Justice. That report by our parliamentary correspondent, Mercedes Percent. South Africa's civil rights lawyer George Bizos says hope exists for a unified South Africa for all who live in it. He was thanking political parties in the city of Johannesburg for unanimously agreeing to honor him and Ravonia trialist Andrew Langeni for their contribution to South Africa's democracy. Advocate Bizos says despite their political differences, these parties demonstrated a shared vision of what is valuable to the country. Debo Mokobo reports. Former Rivonia trialist and Rum Langen and civil rights lawyer advocate George Bezos are now free men of the city of Johannesburg. This is the highest award that the city through its mayor can bestow on its citizens. Past recipients include former President Nelson Mandela and Ahmed Katrad, among others. Although there is no monetary benefits and privileges to the award, the recipients were happy and humbled by the recognition. Advocate George Bezos thanked the different political parties in the council for agreeing to honor them, saying this bodes well for the country's democracy. I'm very pleased to hear that the people of the council, whatever differences there may be amongst them of a political nature, they can actually agree on having a function such as this today. Thank you very much. Let's carry on. Let's speak through the words of the Constitution that South Africa belongs to all those who live in it. Advocate Bezos also says although he's worried about some of the challenges facing the country, people should not be pessimistic about the future. I get upset when uh, people say that uh, Mandela let us down. We actually managed to avoid a bloody civil war in South Africa by agreeing to the so-called sunset clauses. That's true that there's poverty, joblessness, that there are problems, but uh, actually being pessimistic about it is not an answer. 
However, ANC veteran Andrew Langen, who is in hospital, did not attend the award ceremony. His award was received by his son, Silo, who read out an acceptance speech on his behalf. He says his father remarked that the city's recognition for his sacrifices to the liberation of this country will be in vain if millions of South Africans continue to live in degrading poverty. This honor will be in vain unless you beneficiaries of a new democracy which was achieved by the selflessness, sacrifices and dedicated comrades uphold and carry forth the very ideals and beliefs espoused by my comrades for the better and free tomorrow is enshrined in our Freedom Charter and conveyed through our Bill of Rights and Constitution. On recent political developments in the country, Mlangeni says as part of the ANC family, they discuss all the challenges facing their political home. He says his father is always optimistic that the ANC will overcome all its challenges. I mean, we do speak. Uh, he's a very disciplined member of the ANC with a long vision that uh, the future is still bright. We might have this at the moment, the difficulties that we are facing, but nothing is impossible that we cannot overcome it and come out of that as a strong party again. Jobek Mayor Park Stowe has since visited Mlangen in hospital to present his award. He says for their commitment to non-racialism and prosperous country, both Mlangen and Bezos are a good example for South Africans to emulate. They are men who have fought consistently for freedom and equality. And our great city is proud to recognize their lifelong commitment to these values. We hope, without arrogance or presumption, to follow them in the path that they have opened for us and to commit ourselves to working for personal and social freedom as they have done so outstandingly. Honorable Mlangeni and Advocate Bezos, as South Africans, we aspire to walk in your footsteps and realize the ideals and values that you represent. Meanwhile, Selom Langeni says his father is recovering well, insisting that there is no need to panic. I am Tebu Mokobi in Johannesburg. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Sudan rebel leader Riek Machar has ignored a passionate plea by United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon to go to Juba and join President Salva Kiir in forming a transitional government of national unity. Machar was expected in the country earlier this week but failed to land there twice after disagreeing with the authorities in the capital, Juba, to allow him to enter the capital with heavy weapons, including anti-tank missiles. James Shemangula reports. The situation remains tense and unpredictable in South Sudan, where high expectations of rebel leader Riek Machar returning home to take the position of vice president in a transitional government have diminished, after he failed twice to land in the capital Juba. Now the Juba government is contacting Machar with a view to reaching an agreement on transportation of his heavy military equipment to the capital. William Ezekiel, Riek Machar's spokesman, says, Had the Juba government allowed Machar to land in Juba with his heavy military equipment, and also allow his anti-tank military hardware to be transported by road to Juba, the rebel leader would have been in the country today. However, Ezekiel was not in a position to say precisely when Machar is to arrive in Juba, simply saying his homecoming depends on the government's permission to allow his military hardware 
to reach Juba. Meanwhile, as the government of Juba eagerly wait for the return home of Riek Machar, ordinary South Sudanese have expressed mixed reactions to the fact that Machar is not in Juba. Here is a sampling of their views. I have really lost hope. All of the South Sudanese were respecting, have high expectation of his arrival, that if he arrives or if he comes back home, things may change to a better situation. Like this, this is the first South Sudanese that if he comes back, then economical crisis may reduce. But now, he's nowadays, he promised to come. I personally really lose hope. According to me, uh, he's leaving us with no hope and uh, he's also making us actually not to have confidence in the arrangement for his coming. So we feel very bad and uh, we feel very disappointed in regard to his preparations. As far now, even as I talked, I even don't have any heart even to hear any news about his coming. We were hoping if he arrives in South Sudan, everything will be okay. The suffering with the, what the citizen of South Sudan suffering, I think... If you arrive in South Sudan, everything will be changed in terms of um, good and even in terms of road also because there is a lot of uh, problem on the, on, in the, on the road. So we were expected if he's arrived in South Sudan, things will change. I'm not happy because every day they make promises tomorrow, 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 and it doesn't come. I mean, we want to see what he has in store for the nation. What, uh, what is his um, agenda when he comes on power? We want to see all these things happening. But when he keep on postponing, then we also keep on losing hope. Views of ordinary people of South Sudan on failure by rebel leader Riek Machari to arrive in Ijuba on a Monday as had been expected. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The World Health Organization, WHO, has warned that the yellow fever outbreak in Angola poses a threat to to the entire world. In an effort to stop the outbreak in its tracks, the UN health body is extending its vaccination campaign beyond the country's capital, Luanda, to other areas that have reported cases of the virus in recent days. So far, the outbreak has spread to nearly every province in the country. The WHO's estimates show that close to 2,000 suspected cases have been reported since last December, including about 250 deaths. More from the spokesperson for the WHO, Tariq Yazarevich. This has been decided because there is local transmission of yellow fever virus in other provinces other than the capital, Luanda. So uh, we are starting with uh, those two provinces that will see yellow fever uh, vaccine arrive and people will be vaccinated. So we can try to uh, contain this outbreak in, in Huambo and Belenga provinces. But again, we will see if there is a need to extend even further because, as you know, to contain the yellow fever outbreak, it is really important that everyone gets vaccinated in the area where we have a local transmission. Tarek, how many people have been vaccinated so far and how many more do you hope to reach? Right now, uh, we have already vaccinated around 6 million people in the capital, Luanda, and therefore uh, we have seen that number of cases of yellow fever has dropped uh, as a result of this vaccination. We have so far vaccinated 1 million people since the beginning of the vaccination in provinces Wambo and Belenga. 
we also hope that uh, 2.1 uh, million people will be vaccinated in coming days and weeks so we can really try to stop this outbreak before see more exported cases as we have seen in some neighboring countries so far. What specific challenges are being faced by this campaign? Well, obviously, it is first important that we ensure there is enough of vaccines. We have already signaled many times that the stockpile of yellow fever vaccine is uh, 6 million uh, doses per year, and this uh, stockpile has been depleted. Now, we managed during the month of March to replenish the stock with the help of our partners. So we have uh, some additional vaccines available. Obviously, then there is a logistical issue of how to bring vaccines inside the country, how to get them to the provinces, and how to organize the vaccination itself. But again, we see that health authorities in Angola are very committed to uh, carry on with this exercise and hopefully we will see the outbreak slowing so far. We know that there were more than 250 deaths from yellow fever and we know that there were cases exported to Democratic Republic of Congo, to Kenya, and this is something that we are very worried about and that's why it is important to attack the outbreak at its source. Now, you've been talking about how Angola's outbreak has stretched existing yellow fever vaccine supplies. What is the likelihood of this affecting efforts to curb the disease? We managed, with the help of partners, to replenish the stockpile, so we have more vaccines available. The problem would be definitely if we would have a larger outbreak in other countries that would require mass vaccination, same kind as we are doing right now in Angola, and this would put additional burden on already stretched vaccine production. Vaccine production is about 80 million doses per year. There are only four manufacturers. Lots of these vaccines go into routine immunization in countries where yellow fever is endemic, but also into the mass vaccination campaigns as we do it now. Again, so it is important that on one hand, we work with manufacturers to try to see how the production can be increased and how financing can be ensured. But on the other hand, really try to stop the outbreak uh, where it is right now. Just before I let you go, Tarek, how is the virus transmitted and what are the symptoms? Well, the virus is uh, transmitted uh, through a mosquito bite. It is basically the same mosquito that is uh, carrying other diseases such as the chikungunya, uh, such as Zika. Basically, you will get yellow fever if mosquito has bitten infected person before you and then will transmit that virus to you uh, through the bite. Many people will not have any symptoms. Symptoms are usually similar to those of other diseases and that fever, that's a muscle pain. Only in one out of five persons, we will see that yellow fever may enter its toxic phase where it would cause jaundice, it would cause problems with the organs, and if people don't receive support care, may have a fatal issue. So it is very, very important that people are vaccinated because there is no specific treatment right now, but vaccination is very effective. That was Tariq Yazarevich, spokesperson for the World Health Organization, on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. The country could generate up to 6 billion rand annually with the sugar-sweetened beverage tax announced by government earlier this year. It could also reduce the number of obese people by 220,000 over the next three years. These are some of the findings from research conducted by Priceless SA, a unit of Wits University. School of Public Health. Tabil Mbele reports. South Africa has a growing obesity burden. We are in the top three countries globally with high obesity numbers. Close to 40% of women and 11% of men are classified as obese. We are also ranked in the top 10 countries with a high consumption of sugar beverages. 
Professor Karen Hoffman of Priceless South Africa says sugar tax would reduce the number of obese people by a quarter of a million and have financial benefits for the country as well. A 20% tax, our modelling shows that there would probably be about 6 billion rand in revenue annually from that tax. That can be used for many other very important purposes in South Africa. We could use that money for improving the quality of care in the hospitals, in the primary care clinics. We could also use that money to educate uh, people at universities. The Centre for Diabetes and Endocrinology says the money should be used to subsidise fruits and vegetables and to promote healthy lifestyles in order to reduce the increasing burden of non-communicable diseases or diseases of lifestyle. Hamish van Veek is a dietitian at the centre. My big question is, where is that money going? If that money is going to go to making healthy food cheaper, then you'll have my blessing. Because if you look at South Africa, 60% of women in South Africa say, when they go to the grocery shop, do you know what the number one thing is they think of? Food price. So you're not going, oh, I must be healthy. That's only 14% of women consider healthy eating when they go buy food. It's price. And if unhealthy food is cheap, if sugar-containing beverages are relatively cheap, People will buy it. They have no idea that these things are actually killing them. Van Veek says in South Africa, the highest sugar consumption is in children, which explains the growing number of younger children having diabetes. Professor Hoffman says they've taken lessons from at least 12 other countries who've also introduced sugar tax, such as Mexico. We're in the top 10 of sugar-sweetened beverage consumers. South Africans consume approximately 31 kilograms of sugar a year. But what's very important about this particular tax is in South Africa and in other countries is that it's liquid sugar. Liquid sugar is particularly bad. So to get back to your question about the labeling, it would make a huge difference to know, for people to know how many teaspoons of sugar they are consuming when they consume a sugar-sweetened beverage. Professor Hoffman says a series of steps have to be taken to address the obesity problem caused by sugar consumption in South Africa. We should be labelling all the sugar, sugary beverages. We should be labelling all food that contains a certain amount more of sugar on the front of the pack in big letters that we can all read and understand and say it in how many teaspoons of sugar rather than grams, which none of us understand. I think that will help people. Not marketing beverages to children is very important because the biggest consumers are the youth. Critics of sugar tax have described the singling out of one category of products for taxes as discriminatory and also believe this will unfairly penalise poor consumers. Government intends to introduce the sugar tax on the 1st of April 2017. Our headlines up next with Onil Nsinsi. The Ethiopian government identifies and surrounds the area where an armed group is suspected of holding over 100 children hostage. DRC police fired tear gas to disperse hundreds of anti-government protesters who accused security forces of vandalizing protesters of opposition leaders and young survivors of sexual violence by peacekeepers in Central African Republic say they've received little help even as the international community pledged to to do more. Channel Africa News, I'm Onilin Sinsi.
Thank you, Onele. The International Medical Humanitarian Organization Doctors Without Borders, MSF, has called for a fast-track plan to scale up HIV treatment in West and Central Africa if the United Nations' targets to defeat AIDS globally are to be met. In a few, in a new report entitled Out of Focus, How Millions of People in West and Central Africa Are Being Left Out of the Global HIV Response, MSF details how people in countries like Guinea, the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Central African Republic continue to be left, continue in droves to be left out from the disease due to lack of access to treatment in our weekly look at health issues. We focus attention on the developments in HIV in Francophone countries of sub-Saharan Africa with Amanda Banda tomorrow. MSF HIV Advocacy Coordinator in Africa. What MSF sees in our projects in Western Central Africa actually reminds us of the situation in South Africa in 1999 and other countries in the Southern African region at a time before ARVs were widely available and you saw HIV-positive people typically on the verge of death. You're looking at the timelines between 1999 and the situation in South Africa and you're thinking this is almost 15, 20 years later. And for us, I think it's unbelievable that similar situations are being witnessed elsewhere on the continent. Amanda, is this the first time that MSF is speaking out about the fact that these countries are being left behind by the AIDS revolution? Publicly, I would say it's the first time, though I think we have been doing a lot of internal lobbying with different organizations and donors and even the specific countries affected. But what has been missing before was comprehensive overview of the situation and typology of the situation, what's happening concretely, where, and what is causing this things and this is why we came out publicly with this report. Give us a brief overview of what the state of HIV and AIDS is like in these countries. How bad is the situation? So in the whole region we are talking about 6.6 million people living with HIV and AIDS and 5 million out of the 6.6 million are not on treatment. We're seeing a situation of 21% of new HIV infections, and this is very high and very worrying, 27% of deaths by HIV, and you have 45% of children are born with HIV and AIDS, and 9 out of 10 of children do not have access to ART treatment at all, and 3 out of 4 adults don't have access to treatment. What, in your view, is at the core of the lack of progress in the fight against the HIV-AIDS scourge in the region? There are quite a number of reasons, and I can just mention a few amongst many. But what we have witnessed as MSF in the region is that, first, there's lack of information about HIV, because normally the prevalence rates are low. It's normally not seen as priority by the political leaders, so even though you have a prevalence that is low, but the actual number of people affected are huge because of the large number of populations per countries in that region. So it's basically lack of information about HIV. People don't have the knowledge that we are privileged to know in this region. And because the prevalence is low, even though the actual numbers of people living with HIV are huge and even more than other countries in this region, there is lack of political priority around the issue. I mean, stigma and discrimination is also very high, and it's really an issue of concern. What we also see as a problem is that most people living with HIV and AIDS, while every treatment 
is free for itself. But if people have to access treatment, they have to go through consultations where they pay and they have to go through the lab test where they pay. So the access fee that people have to pay to access free ART is actually a barrier. We also see massive stockouts of ARVs in the region. I can give an example of DRC where NSF did a study in uh, 2015 and we found that 77% of facilities in Kishasa alone had reported stockouts of ARVs in the previous three months. Actually, 68% of patients were sent away without medication, and this leads to people not continuing their treatment or adhering to treatment. Now, despite the lack of progress, are there any milestones that the countries have reached, even if small, since the HIV epidemic began? It's a very good question and very interesting one, actually, and very difficult to say. As much as we don't want to always bring in the bad news and the doom and the gloom, we do celebrate that a lot of achievements in terms of curbing the epidemic globally have been made, and a lot, actually, in the sub-Saharan African region, especially in the eastern and southern African region. But to be honest, for Western Central Africa, we see very little achievements and it's very difficult to pinpoint that specifically these are some of the achievements that have been made when you compare the coverage rates of treatment for that region to this region and the actual progress made what we see in that region is what we saw in this region in the early 90s and the early years of HIV there is little to celebrate at the moment in that region as much as we have quite a lot to celebrate in the eastern and southern African region and other parts of the world then are your recommendations as MSF. What models of treatment and care should these countries consider if they are to turn the tide against their HIV epidemics? We have several recommendations and we're not saying we have all the answers to the situation because we are there working and alongside with governments and other partners trying to resolve the situation. But from what we have seen so far, we have a few recommendations for the donors and the international partners, but as well as the governments affected. For the governments affected, I think our major recommendations, I think, is to move towards models of treatment and care that will allow a number of people to be put on treatment, that will allow for the increase of people to be put on treatment, for example, task shifting where a specific task in the care and treatment of healthcare workers and of people affected is decentralized to other lower cadres. We're also looking at community involvement and engagement of civil society as well as models of care that bring treatment and care closer to the people. That is healthcare systems that revolve around patient lives, not patient lives revolving around the healthcare system. For the international donors, UNAIDS, PEPRA, Global Fund, and others, I think what we're calling is high political mobilization on the issue. We are asking for a specific task force to be put in place that will really look into what is it that can be done to put the numbers up to really increase and triple what we're asking for is the tripling of ART access in the region. And that will take a huge amount of political mobilization at the international level as well as financing to ensure that we achieve the results that we are asking for. That was Amanda Banda, HIV Advocacy Coordinator in Africa for Doctors Without Borders, MSF, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Cameroon has set ablaze 2,000 elephant tusks in a show of its commitment to fight illegal trade in ivory in the Central African nation. In Southern Africa, Angola this week pledged to close one of the largest domestic ivory markets in the world, and implement tougher border and screening controls. 
In Kenya, wildlife authorities are gearing up to burn the country's entire stockpile of illegal ivory and rhino horns. The East African nation has seen cases of poaching go down by at least 64% last year, as Sarah Kimani reports. In Kenya, task after task, the stockpile pyramids are coming up. Kitili Mbadi is the director of the Kenya Wildlife Service. It feels fantastic because this is the final stage towards the burn. We've uh, um, taken the ivory out of the strong rooms, we've taken it out of our database, out of the inventory that we've had, loaded them onto containers, brought the containers here. Now this is the end, where we are taking them out of the containers and building the ivory uh, pyramids. Kenya is preparing to burn her entire stockpile of illegal ivory and rhino horns. The tasks, each marked for weight, size and the location they were collected from, represent thousands of elephants and rhinos killed in the past couple of years. Kenya first burnt ivory in 1989. That helped push for an international ban on trade in ivory. Patrick Omondi is the head of the elephant division for the Kenya Wildlife Services. Actually, they were going to extinction. So the action on the first ban was significant and we saw a reverse the price of ivory in the black market lower to a bare zero bare minimal and we saw a poaching reduced to manageable levels across the continent while countries like Kenya are winning the war against poaching, Southern African countries are struggling. The United Nations reports that in South Africa alone, rhino poaching increased by about 9,000 percent between 2007 and 2015. Last year, 1,175 rhinos were poached in the country. Bathy again. In Africa as a whole, poaching was its worst last year. Had its worst year last year. So if the incidence of poaching on the continent in our neighbors and other countries increase, then it's only a matter of time before they set their sights on our elephants. Strong laws, technology and political will are some of the tactics that Kenya has employed to end the threat of poaching. Conservationists say much more needs to be done. Paula Kahumbu is a conservationist based in Nairobi, Kenya. We need to close down all these domestic markets of ivory across Africa and across Asia, in the Americas, in Europe as well, because otherwise elephants will never be safe. Kenya's wildlife authorities will not put a monetary value to the 105 tons of tusks and 1.35 tons of rhino horns stockpile that is going to be set ablaze at the end of this month. What they are not keeping a secret, however, is that by torching the country's entire stockpile, they will be setting a precedent for the continent. Our actions are demonstrating that we believe that there is no intrinsic value and we would like it to be a catalyst for a closure of the ivory markets globally. Elephants are amazing animals. When you've worked with them the way I've lived with them for the last 30 years, I see them like human beings, very intelligent. They transform a forest into, open it up for grazers. You know, the moon, they have the dead ones. And um, they drive the tourism industry for many countries, not only Kenya. If it drives tourism, it means it drives the economy of a country. So if you kill a 710 animal just for a trophy, to make a bangle, to make a rubber stamp, it is madness. To me, it's madness. So to us, elephants has more value when it is alive.
ivory has more value when it is an alive elephant than when it's out. Mm. And that is why my country is sending this signal to the world. And I think for many other African countries, tourism drives the economy. You kill an elephant, you are essentially killing the economy of many African states. The economic loss from the ban of the East African nation's entire stockpile, a desperate call to the world to end the trade in ivory. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 and we say good morning to Tabi Solohoko with our economics update. Thanks, Lou. The International Federation of Accountants has advised the global audit firms, also known as the Big Four, which all operate in Uganda, to concentrate more on auditing multinational companies. The Big Four provides an extensive range of accounting and auditing services, including external taxation services, management, business consultancy, risk assessment and control to organizations around the world. They also provide massive employment opportunities to accountants and auditors, among other professions. Botswana's largest copper and nickel producer BCL Mine plans to raise a 250 million US dollars through a bond open to both local and foreign players. Acting Divisional Manager Tubokane Museta told a media briefing that the firm had engaged Barclays Africa Group to facilitate the bond issuance planned for later this year. He did not give the exact date for the bond issue. One of Africa's largest technology startups, Launchpad Demo Africa, is coming to South Africa. It will be held at the Santin Convention Center in Johannesburg late August. The conference provides a platform for African technology startups to pitch their ideas to both local and international investors. Executive Officer Henry Hare. Demo Africa is a launchpad for technology companies from Africa. So in its simplest form, that's what it is. So what we do is we look out, uh, we go across the continent uh, looking for interesting uh, startups that are developing technology solutions to solve uh, specific problems uh, within the continent. 
The number of Rwandese owning mobile phones has increased slightly. Rwanda Utilities Regulatory Authority mobile phone subscription statistics for March indicate an increase of 0.4%. This compares to a decrease of 0.21% in February. According to the report, Airtel Rwanda was the biggest gainer with 1.676 million subscribers in March. Burundi's year-on-year inflation has eased to 4.3% in March. Food inflation in the 12 months to March slowed to 0.4%. Despite falling inflation, the economy has been battered by a year-long political crisis. Western donors have reduced vital aid, leaving the country more dependent on its modest tea and coffee exports. The U.S. dollar trades at 14.26 in South Africa, 10.50 in Botswana, 9.21 in Zambia, 6.9 British pound, 8.8 euro, gold $1,248, the platinum $1,020 an ounce, brand crude oil $45.93 a barrel. Africa rise and shine. Thank you, Tawiso. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, South African football side Mamelodi Sundowns will be relegated to the second tier CAF Confederations Cup after bowing out of the lucrative African Champions League in the third round. This after they were knocked out by AS Vita Club from the Democratic Republic of Congo at the Lucas Muripe Stadium in Pretoria last night. Sundowns won the match 2-1 on the night, but bowed out on away goal rule after Vita won 1-0 10 days ago in Kinshasa. The visitors scored first in the first half, but the host converted a penalty on the stroke of halftime courtesy of the veteran defender Tabon Tete. And Sundowns have been bundled out, second round, DRC and Mazembe. But Musimani says their tactics were spot on, but lack of experience and naivety is what caused them the tie. FIFA President Gianni Infantino visited the upper house of the Russian parliament, the Federation Council, and gave assurance that Russia would host the 2018 Soccer World Cup. The World Cup uh, 2018 will take place in Russia, of course. This decision has been taken uh, six years ago, almost, and uh, it is now my job as uh, FIFA president, uh, together with uh, Minister Mutko and uh, all the Russian population, actually, to make sure that we deliver the best World Cup ever here in Russia. And soccer great Pelé and world record sprinter Usain Bolt appeared together in midtown Manhattan to cut the ribbon at the grand opening of the New York City flagship location of Harblot. And Pelé, regarded by many as the greatest soccer player ever to play the sport, is, he's never played in the Olympics. That time I become professional and the professional that time could not play in the Olympics. Then in the whole my career, I never play 
in the Olympic. Then I make a joke. I say that's the reason Brazil never won the the the, the championship <laughs> because I never play. <laughs> and then now I was you know talking with my friends. I say listen. I have a six months to prepare, five months to prepare to say goodbye in my country. You know? But unfortunately, I got I got a surgery hip place. Maybe I don't gonna be in shape to play. But uh, I gonna try to play my first Olympics game in Brazil. That is so emotional for us. And then I hope we have a you know, excellent tournament there. Pele added that he believes, despite Brazil's current political and economic issues, they are going to have a perfect Olympic game. Uh, unfortunately, I agree with you, with people who worry uh, about the situation in Brazil, because uh, delay a little bit some uh, some construction, some facility. But fortunately, I think now everything is gonna be you know done for the Olympics. But we have a little you know, political problem now. You no, know? this is making we worry a little bit about the situation. But I think this will be very soon, you know, clear, and then we're gonna have a perfect Olympics game. And finally, three Botswana Kofukan Federation karatekas are in Sofia for the annual Kofukan World Cup. The three athletes were selected after impressive performances at the Kofukan Open in February. The World Karateka and Karate Federation sanctioned tournament is penciled for one of Europe's oldest and historically rich capital city of Bulgaria this weekend. European karate powerhouses such as France, Italy and Greece, amongst others, are expected to grace the championships, which will also see some of Africa's finest crops of karatekas, especially from the north of the Sahara Desert, take part. In the last edition of the tournament, which is organized by the Shitoru Karate Du International BKF, sent four athletes to the March Fancy matches. And that's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine this hour, the High Court in Blantyre has adjourned the 11 million US dollar corruption case involving former President Bakili Mulusi, and the World Health Organization has warned that the yellow fever outbreak in Angola poses a threat to the entire world. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Lebo Munamukulu, technical producer Revelina rather Mario Edwards and the rest of the team thank you for joining us for comments about our show send us an email at infochannelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Selaila Selota with a track titled By the Side <laughs>